another podcast. This is Mark Steiner. Good to have you all with us. Uh, we are about to talk with Scott Shane, who is on the investigative staff of the New York Times. He's a national security reporter at the Washington Bureau of the New York Times. And on the Sunday Review uh, last weekend, he wrote a piece uh, called Russia Isn't the Only One Meddling in Elections. We Do It Too. And we've been saying that a bit, so it's good to have him on the air to talk about that. And Scott, welcome. Good to have you with us. Thanks. Thanks, Mark. Great to be here. This is really important, I think, what you wrote uh, for people to understand and um, that what we're accusing the Russians of doing, meddling in our election, is not something that just fell out of the sky and the Russians do and no one else does. I initially wanted to write that article maybe a year ago, but there was so much to cover just trying to understand what the Russians did. I spent most of the last summer trying to figure out what they were up to on social media, something that we've heard a lot about in the last few months. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I also thought the best way to do such a story journalistically would be to find a heretofore unknown case in which the U.S. had meddled with a foreign election in recent years, in the last couple of years. And so I talked to a lot of people hunting for such an example. Of course, anything like that is highly classified. It's difficult to get anyone to talk about it. But, you know, my hope was I could find out enough about a recent example to kind of make it more or less parallel with the Russian case. Uh, when that failed, and I still don't know whether it failed because we're not doing this so much anymore, or because I just you know, couldn't get the sourcing to find something that's obviously very, very secret, very highly protected. Uh, wh- whichever that is, I decided I would, you know, it was high time that we did a story on this topic and I would just basically take the historical approach. And that, that that allows you to, you know, make the point that it's not a one-off, that this is a sort of recognizable intelligence operation. And so one way I got into, I got into the piece by quoting a, a retired CIA person, a fairly re- recently retired CIA guy, as saying, you know, is there anything bizarre about what the Russians did? No, <laughs> absolutely not. We've done it, you know, we've done it many times, and, and I hope we are keep doing it. As, we keep doing it, as he put it. So, you know, for people, that, that's what had struck me, I guess, is I knew that was the case, and people who've, you know, read a lot about intelligence, studied intelligence, know that, the, that this is a pattern through history for the U.S. and for other, certainly for other major powers. But... I think a lot of Americans, this was the first time they'd ever been introduced to the concept of one country, you know, um, covertly messing with another country's election. So they were not surprisingly very upset with Russia and uh, didn't, you know, didn't have and, and you know, hey, we, we can all be upset with Russia over this, but it's good to have the full context um, to, to make these judgments. Well, I'm going to jump into that, but I, I you know, I think you, you, you raised that in, in a part of your article towards the end. It was very clear. I mean, I, I'll just read to, to our listeners uh, here, and we can talk about it just for a second. You wrote that what the CIA may have done in recent years to steer, for, steer foreign elections is still secret and may not be known for decades. And then you went on to quote William J. Doherty, who worked for the CIA uh, for a long time, from 79 to 96, saying, I assume there are a lot of stuff going, old stuff going on because, you know, it never changes. The technology may change, but the obje- objectives don't. Pardon me, the objectives don't. So I mean, I, I so it's it's 
there's a reason why you can't find out if things are going on now because they're classified. Exactly, exactly. I mean, look how hard it was to figure out what the Russians were doing to us. Um, and, you know, some of that was in a fairly open medium, meaning, you know, Facebook and Twitter and so on. Uh, so, so, yeah, I mean, it, you know, but, but at the same time, I think there has been a historical evolution. That is my impression. That is my belief. Um, I think in the earlier in the history of the CIA, uh, you know, they, they had no mixed feelings about this stuff. They thought that you could go in and topple a democratically elected leader because it was in the U.S. interest to do so. And uh, I think we're, uh, you, know, you know, I don't think that's happened in a long time. And I think, I think we're somewhat squeamish and averse to it now um, because we purport to stand for democracy and there's something a little peculiar of going in and, and uh, you know, um, overthrowing a democratically elected leader of another country in the name of democracy. So I think there has been a hev uh, you know, an evolution from the very heavy hand of, say, through the 70s. And, and you know, you, you could probably push it beyond that, I, you know, in some cases. But what I have noticed is, well, for, first of all, Cold War ended. And so there wasn't the obvious contest between the Soviet Union and the United States for the sort of um, loyalty and ideological, you know, commitment of every other country in the world. And so the Soviets were going into these countries and giving money to communist parties and we were going in giving money to non-communist parties. So there was a, um, you know, there was a kind of clear cut framework. The ones that I was able to find in more recent years are, are more unusual. Um, they're in Iraq and Afghanistan where we're at war and at times have been more or less like viceroys. And we, you know, in some cases have put a thumb on the scale of their elections, sometimes unsuccessfully, interestingly enough. Uh, Hamid Karzai was elected despite <laughs> our all, uh, all the efforts of the State Department, at least, to defeat him in 2009. And um, but but I don't see I, I don't think there's a, a perceived U.S. interest and obviously it has to be a strong interest to do something like this because it's risky politically. It's expensive, sometimes dangerous. I don't think we quite have, you know, see such a strong interest in every country in the world anymore to make something like this happen. So I think that's part of why it may be hard to find more recent cases. Though, though, in in your piece, you you point out that it is as late as 1996, when the then head of the Soviet Russia, Boris Yeltsin, might have been defeated by somebody who from the, the old Communist Party, that yep. they pushed a 10 billion dollar international monetary fund and had a team of consultants to help with that election to ensure that he stayed in, and then, and even now giving money to uh, uh, Alexei Navalny. Uh, who, from, from, from maybe not as much money, at least not that we know of, um, that that was going to to people in Russia who were opponents of Putin. So I mean, well, actually, that's to clarify that um, Alexei Navalny, who's uh, uh, as people may know, and sort of the Putin's nemesis, basically the leading opposition leader, informal opposition leader in Russia. I mean, Putin doesn't really tolerate 
uh, a real organized opposition. But Navalny is a charismatic, popular, youngish leader who uh, would be potentially a competitor for the presidency if he were allowed to run. Uh, he actually got a, a, a group he was working for got a grant, got one grant in 2006 of $23,000 from the National Endowment for Democracy. And he is not getting money in recent years, I'm told. So, but what I'm saying is, I guess, is that the, the, the Russian meddling in this election, which clearly yeah. seemed to have happened on, on different levels, and, and, and we can argue and being argued about, is being argued about what effect, or, effect that had or did not have on this election last year. Mm -hmm. The Americans were involved on some level still in, in I think, in Russia, it sounds like, and other people are writing about. And then when you yeah. go back to 1996, which isn't that long ago, and we wanted to make sure that uh, Mr. Zugayev, Zugayev, did I say that right? Did not get elected uh, uh, when Barsha was running against Zugana. him? I mean, Zugayev was uh, head of the old Communist Party. Correct. And he was actually polling ahead of Yeltsin in 1996. Right. And that panicked a lot of Russians. <laughs> Uh, and it also panicked Bill Clinton, and Clinton gave instructions to his government, uh, you know, cr kind of across the board, we really got to do anything we can to help our my friend Boris. And uh, there, I'm told that there was a covert element to that. You know, there's the CIA was up to something. I, I don't know what that is. Um, but there was a, a fairly, you know, significant overt uh part of it, which was pressuring the IMF to give them this loan. They were in terrible financial shape at the time and uh, sending these political consultants over who some Russians have suggested were more trouble than they were worth. But <laughs> in any case, um, you know, Yeltsin won that election and did have some American help. Uh, you know, I guess what what complicates this is when people tell you and, and as you saw, I quote a couple of people who are very knowledgeable about this. As, as saying this, that you, know, that, that you can't compare what we do to what the Russians do, mm -hmm. because at least in setting aside you know, the 50s, 60s, and let's say even 70s, in recent decades, we have intervened to preserve or enhance democracy and to try to give uh, an even chance or a level field to people who are challenging an autocratic leader, for example, whereas the Russians come in and mess with democracy. <laughs> they they want to screw it up and they, um, you know, they, they often want to promote an authoritarian leader because uh, that's uh, sort of, you know, Putin's style and that's what he wants. And so you can't compare what we do to what they do. And I think that's where the kind of um, core of the argument about this uh, inevitably goes. And I guess you, if you if you wanted to push it a bit, I mean, I, it, it, taking two examples here, I was thinking about the election of, of 1996 in, in Russia. I mean, mm -hmm. uh, that that um, Mr. Gennady Zaganov mm -hmm. was probably no more of a Democrat than Boris Yeltsin. I mean, it, it's just the fact that he was a part of the old Communist Party. And so was Yeltsin, as a matter of fact. But I mean, yes, the, exactly. The, the, yeah. It, or, or even as you write about the Nicaraguan election, um, ensuring that the Sandinistas didn't win. Yeah. And the Sandinistas, again, were, they, we didn't like their politics or, or economic policies, but right. they, they, again, were, were more, no, no more or less democratic than anybody else. Yeah. You people no. could argue. You mean that, in other words, that they were, they were a popular party that was running in an election. Right. 
Yeah. No, I think that's right. I mean, that's where it gets tricky. Of course, in the history of the world, um, there have certainly been uh, parties and individuals who came to power through a democratic election, and that was the last democratic election because of their predilections. I mean, you know, Hitler came to power, obviously, um, in that way. And I think the concern about the communists is, you know, the Communist Party of the Soviet Union had not tolerated uh, elections with more than one candidate for a job for 70 years. So I think the concern in 1996, justified or unjustified, was that it would be, you know, one man, one vote, one time. Zyuganov would get in there and say, actually, you know what, these these competitive elections haven't worked out so well, and and, and we'd sort of be back to the the old way. Um, but I, but you know, I mean, and I guess it's you, you know, it's sort of. Do you think? Uh, do you trust your government's methods and intentions as an American sufficiently to bless the idea? that it's going to do the right thing, even if it's operating covertly in some other country. Um, I mean, if you have a lot of faith in your government, then maybe you'll say, you know what, they're going to do the right thing and they can tell me about it in 50 years. <laughs> but uh, that's sort of the way the way it is now, I guess. So, but when you, what, do you, what does it mean for us as we wrestle with this here in the United States? <clears throat> Pardon me, when you, when you quote in your article... Stephen Hall, who retired from the CIA after 30 years, he, you have the quote in here saying, if you ask an intelligence officer, do the Russians break the rules or do something bizarre? The answer is no, not at all. Or you quote Locke K. Johnson, who you call the dean of American intelligence scholars, as saying, we've been doing this kind of thing since the CIA was created in 1947. We've used what the British call King George's cavalry, suitcases <laughs> of cash. So what, what does that say if, if this... If articles like as you wrote, as you uh, as you recently wrote in in the New York Times, become part of the larger dialogue and conversation about this Russian meddling investigation, how does that play into all of that? Do you think for the American public, for us to understand what's really going on here? Well, of course, there are two elements to the Mueller investigation, the FBI's investigation into the Russian interference in the 2016 election. One part is what we saw last Friday when the indictment, indictments came down of 13 Russian individuals and three companies for um, essentially committing mass fraud on Facebook and Twitter and other uh, social media platforms posing as Americans and you know putting out pro-Trump, anti-Clinton, and sometimes just divisive material. So that's one thing is understanding what the Russians did and holding people responsible for it. You know, in this case, a bunch of Russians. The other part, as everybody knows, is was there any assistance or cooperation from Donald Trump or people associated with right. then candidate Trump? And so even if we were to kind of take a cynical view and say, you know what, everybody does this, uh, you know, what's the big deal? It probably didn't affect things that much, although um, we, we should probably talk about that a little later. Uh, you know, let's just not even worry about it. I think, you know, uh, personally, I would argue that it's worth the FBI's time and our money 
to first of all understand exactly what was done by the Russians, and certainly, secondly, to understand whether there were any Americans who were complicit in it or helping out. Um, and so, so I think even if you take a fairly cynical view of this, and you say the Russians do it to us, we do it to the Russians, we do it to others, uh, I still think it's worth investigating, worth getting to the bottom of it, worth potentially holding people accountable. Perhaps ultimately, the upshot will be we don't find any Americans who are complicit, and we decide, you know, some people have suggested we should have a treaty with the Russians, believe it or not, in which we say we will leave your elections alone if you leave our elections alone. <laughs> and you know what? That's sort of an intriguing concept mm -hmm. because given the tools that w we both have now, meaning hacking, leaking, messing with social media, that stuff is very difficult to stop and prevent. And both countries, in a way, have an incentive to um, to sort of back off this this war. The only the only problem there, of course, is that uh, they don't really have elections uh, in the same sense that we do. They did for a while. I lived in Russia from eighty eight to ninety one, and and during that period, they introduced the first elections, and they were really quite free. And they kept being free for quite a number of years, but in recent years, they really haven't been. Putin's kind of put an end to that. So, so in some ways, it's it's perhaps not a not a fair agreement. But you know, certainly we would benefit from a treaty like that more than they would, because I mean, Putin's going to win anyway. Uh, so that's something some people have talked about. But I think you know, I I think it's possible to be very distressed at what the Russians did, very ticked off at what the Russians did to make a, a reasonable judgment about what effect it did or did not have, and at the same time accept that this has been the part, a big part of the history of intelligence agencies in their country and in our country for, for many decades. Yeah, and I think that if you, just to add to that quickly here, I mean, that, and from your article as well, and it made me really think about this as I was reading the article and sort of looking at some older stories, um, that, I mean, the U.S., intervention in certain elections, whether it's Chile in 1964 that you wrote about, or over the years in the Italian elections, or um, even the Russian election of 1996, election, elections that we can mention that you wrote about, that we did, intelligence agencies did have an effect on the outcome of those elections. We don't know whether this yes. meddling in America had an effect at all, or what kind of effect it may have had, we'll find out. But so, in fact, these things do, do affect the nature of another country's political existence. Absolutely. I mean, you know, again, this kind of has its roots in the Cold War. And the kind of classic example is Italy. Between the 1940s and the 1960s, in virtually every Italian election, the CIA was there with bags of cash and a lot of other stuff, um, assisting the non-communist parties and the non-communist candidates. So, and, you know, and I have every reason to believe, I mean, certainly I have read, I, I guess I haven't seen the evidence, but certainly the allegation is that the Soviets were there as well, supporting the communist candidates. And, the, you know, that that did undoubtedly have a significant effect on, on uh, you know, what was going on in Italy in those in those years. And conceivably, the CIA's intervention prevented Italy from becoming a communist uh, becoming a communist country and potentially under the Soviet thumb 
you know, I mean, certainly, uh, you know, that's that's within the realm of possibility. Uh, so some people would say, you know, well done. Right. And, and people from the other side might say the same thing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Well done. Well, yeah. Scott, Scott Chain, I, I want to just say that I really appreciate your reporting and your writing and the investigative work you do uh, and look forward to much more and look forward to having longer and greater conversations. Okay, thanks so much, Mark. Thank you so much, Scott Chain. Thanks for listening to our podcast. This program was produced and edited by Calvin Perry with assistance from our intern, Nora Belbidia. You can download the podcast and more at steinershow.org and on iTunes or on your favorite podcasting app. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter by searching for The Mark Steiner Show. And please let us know what you think. Write me at mark at steinershow.org. We'll be back in a couple more days with a brand new podcast.